Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp. And today we are talking to Christian Herwig Bull, a man who knows a thing or two about the Hermetic Way in antiquity. So, uh, Christian, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. You've published a book recently. Yes. What's it called? The Tradition of Hermes Trismegistus. Uh, and the sub- uh, subtitle is uh, The Egyptian Priestly Figure as a uh, Teacher of Hellenized Wisdom. And in this book, it seems to me you reopen the question, for a lo- which for a lot of scholars was sort of, they just said, nah, yeah. to, which is, was there something like a religious movement mm. behind the Hermetica? Mm. And you're saying, okay, it's quite plausible that there is. Mm. So I wonder if you can give a quick summary, or a, or a long summary, of how you think, how you envision that that worked. Right. Well, first, it's not really my thesis. I'm building on a consensus uh, that's building now. I mean, there are still detractors claiming that this is a purely literate phenomenon, but uh, uh, I'm building on uh, people like uh, Jean-Pierre Maillet, Garth Foden, uh, Anna van den Kershaw released a book, and they all assume now that there was such a thing as a community behind these texts. Uh, They were not just random Greeks writing a platonic fan fiction and putting an Egyptian name to it, right? Which was the uh, classical André-Jean Vestugier position. Uh, so I'm building on those, and but then changing the picture uh, a little bit. Um, so in the text themselves, you find reference to what is called the way of immortality. Modern scholars tend to talk about the way of Hermes, Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't find that phrase as such, but you do find other people like Jamblichus uh, talking about stuff uh, that's very similar to that. But the way of immortality is attested. And then conversely, the people who are not on the way of immortality, they are following the way of death, in the poem, according to the Poimandris. Okay. So uh, and the text themselves seems to, uh, seem to uh, refer that there is a community. Then you have hymns and so forth that certainly, I mean, it's hard to imagine that someone would sit and write hymns that are never meant to be uh, sung. So that, so you do have these internal references. Uh, the reason that a lot of people doubted that there was such a thing as a hermetic community after, I mean, Richard Reitzenstein in 1904 with the Poimandris was the one who first sort of launched the academic study of hermetism. And he claimed there was such a thing as a hermetic uh, confraternity related to the Gnostic movement. Uh, but he was immediately accused for being an Egyptomaniac. And uh, then you have people like Bousset and Sielinski who, uh, who argued that the doctrinal differences of the texts are such that there could not have been a religious movement. Namely, that you have a group of texts that seem to be dualistic and hostile to the world, whereas you have other texts that seem to be very monistic and uh, world-affirming. Uh, and then you have a group that they call mixed <laughs> between right. the two. So they say there's no way that a single community could uh, hold to those um, contradictory views. Now, so I didn't do this. This was done by um, Jean-Pierre Maillet. Uh, is that uh, he would say, well, no, there's actually, in the way of Hermes, you have to imagine this as a, uh, as a graded curriculum where the disciple would learn different teachings at different stages of the way. 
uh, and he did this uh, from his early, you know, uh, um, uh, editions of the Coptic Hermetica and the Nagamadi uh, codices. But in his reconstruction, um, he, he claims that uh, in the early stages of the way, uh, the uh, disciple would have been eased onto the way and saying, you know, the body is good, the world is nice, just relax and have a good time, <laughs> everything's good, and then gradually he would be taught that, no, in fact, the body is a great obstacle to you. Uh, when you rise on your road of ascent, you need to get rid of the body and uh, detest the body. So for him, the way went from monism to dualism. And that is why, in my book, I uh, turned that topsy-turvy. Right. Um, so, dualism uh, to monism. Exactly. Mm, yeah. I can see that. Um, before we get into that... Yeah. Um, you mentioned Nag Hammadi text, yes. and you also alluded to a vague connection with Gnosticism. It's yes. always hard to talk about anything very precisely with Gnosticism, yes. because Gnosticism isn't, a, isn't an ism at all. It's a, a term we use to talk about a whole range of different movements. Notorious term. No. Yeah. yeah. But um, what is the connection, if there is one? What, how, can, you, can you give a picture of the evidence there and maybe try to characterize the the relationship between our hermetic texts with the wider Gnostic world? Ah, that's a very difficult question, uh, and I uh, omit that in my book. I write that specifically, that I'm not going to deal with this at all because yeah. I wanted to sort of establish a picture of hermetism mm -hmm. in itself. But I, I do think it's clear that there has been some connections, uh, and then the question is whether these connections would have been personal, that these people knew each other. You could think of something like a cultic underworld, uh, like Colin Campbell is talking about, mm. or whether these are more literary, uh, that one group knew the text of the other. So, of course, in the case of the Nagamadi Library, the uh, building consensus now is that the Nagamadi text as such were not written by Gnostics, but by Egyptian monks. So that the text would have been, of course, authored, their authors would have been part of, you know, uh, the, the currents that you might call Gnostic, uh, but the actual physical manuscripts that we have f from 4th century Egypt uh, likely pertains to the uh, uh, monastic uh, movement. The monastic, like the Christian monastic yes. movement. So, uh, uh, of course, this is also a hotly debated topic, uh, but that's, uh, uh, that's the view I adhere to. In that case, the Nagamadi treatises are not proof of any connection between uh, right. these things. Of course, it's a proof that someone who compiled them in the 4th century saw a connection. Or at least found them interesting enough to copy. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if we knew, because we don't have everything that was in that library as no. well. So if we had a picture of the whole library, maybe yeah. it would be even more eclectic. And yeah. I mean, we have a, a text of Plato there, for yeah. example. Uh, maybe there was some Homer. Maybe there yeah. was uh, yeah. some Bible. Yeah. Uh, well, we can. I think we can assume that they would have had a Bible. I mean, so many of the texts deal with the Bible uh, yeah. in some sense. Uh, but to go back, I mean, so if you want to talk about the connection with the uh, uh, between so-called Gnostic text and the Hermetica, I think you need to talk about probably the second century and the, <laughs> and the difficult problems we have of understanding the Gnostic movement in the second century. And, uh, I mean, it's so difficult. My, uh, my personal feeling is that uh, people like Valentinus might well have known the Hermetica. Uh, you have stuff in... Um, 
you have similar stuff popping up in these texts. So, for example, this emphasis of the Agduad is mm. uh, debated on where that concept comes from. Uh, you have that in both Hermetic and Valentinian uh, teachings. So the Agduad is some kind of metaphysical entity. Yes, based uh, in number. or a realm, one would rather yeah. say. Uh, based I in, mean, the, in the, the eightness, it has yeah. to do with the number eight. Yes. Um, one immediately thinks of uh, astronomical um, interpretation, the highest sphere, yeah. the seven, seven planetary spheres topped yeah. by a highest sphere. Well, uh, the Agduad, uh, mostly you would think of as being above the realm of astrology, so yeah. a, above the realm of astral fatality. So the, um, the, the basic cosmology that the, that the Hermetic text adhere to is, is the same as the Middle Platonists. I mean, you have seven spheres, then you have the fixed stars. Mm. Now, interestingly, in the fixed stars is not only the zodiac, but you also have these uh, Egyptian planetary deities called the decans. The decans, yeah. Uh, each of them ruler of ten days each, right? And um, and so these guys are uh, appear in a lot of the technical Hermetica too, which is the corpus dealing mostly with uh, astronom- uh, astrological literature and also with more practical uses of astrology such as the making of amulets and it details for example which stones and which plants belong to which specific uh, uh, planet uh, and the Khan so that one could make an amulet, for example, of a certain stone and inscribe it with a name and a picture of a certain decan, and that would help you if you had problems with, for example, uh, gout or, right. or, or whatever. And also, interesting, uh, interestingly, it could help. Some of them is that it can help you with uh, st- passions, strong passions. So one could envision that these also enter into the way of Hermes, which let's, is... Let's come well, back to that. Yeah, well, let's, let's come, come back, back to that. So... Speaking of the way of Hermes, yeah. as you are, I wonder if you can outline your theoretical cursus of how it went. Right. Because this is really interesting. Yeah. So what I try to do is uh, to take up uh, the, uh, the challenge of figuring out, well, uh, is there, uh, where do the individual texts fit in? And I haven't placed all the text, I don't think all, uh, but uh, so the, the, the candidate uh, was expected to uh, go through a certain curriculum of texts. And the curriculum leads forward to uh, the rite of rebirth. Uh, and uh, this, the rite of rebirth, is what you find in Treatise 13 of, of the, the Corpus Hermeticum. Yeah. So it's an extremely important text, and I deal at length with it in my book. Are we dealing with just the corpus here or also Stobian fragments? Also Stobian fragments. Um, this is the corpus hermeticum as such. We don't know if that was a corpus in antiquity. Uh, so whoever compiled that, he might have been a hermetist, he might not. I mean, uh, uh, Cyril of Alexandria speaks of someone in Athens who had compiled 15 hermetic books. Now, this would have been in the early 5th century, right? Uh, so, uh, so there's no reason to believe that this was kind of a Bible for the hermetists in the ancient yeah. age. But we do find collections, and uh, we do have papyrological records, for example, of um, numbered texts uh, from Hermes to Tot, for example. So text number nine of Hermes to Tot. And a lot of these texts are named in that fashion. They're named after their uh, interlocutor. So I do include Stobias too, and uh, significantly also the uh, the discourse on the eighth and the ninth. 
the Ogdoat and the Ennead, mm. uh, which is in the Nagamadi corpus. Yeah. And again, Corpus Americum 13 is really key here because this treatise sort of has a dialogue between Tot and his father, Hermes Trismegistus. Now, Tot is the sort of the paradigmatic disciple, so to speak. He's this son, both spiritually and it seems physically, of Hermes Trismegistus. And you find him in different treatises. You find him in a sort of at, at different stages of the way. Right. Uh, now, at the time that we find him in the treatise on, uh, on rebirth, he claims to have become a stranger to the world. He's alienated himself from the world. And he says, you promised me, Father, that when I had done that, when I had become a stranger to the world, uh, you would show me the rebirth. And I am now ready. Right? So at that point, he has accomplished and uh, gone through the uh, sort of uh, introductory stages and is ready to be born again. So from that statement, we know that the initial stages had to detail with, uh, you know, making yourself alien to the world. So that was an initial key for me to go through these texts. To reverse Mahi's yes. construction and say the yeah. earlier text is, is the separation from the world, ascesis, separation from the body, yes. um, which we see in so many religious movements of the time. Yeah. And then there's a later stage where you, well, yeah. we'll get to the later stage. Yes, the later stages where, where it all happens. And I think it's, it makes sense also that you would... Um, when you have a, a disciple starting on something, you would often make demands of them t- for them to show their commitment, right? You have the famous Pythagorean five years of silence. Now, whether that's mythical or not, uh, we don't know. But uh, it is common in, in these groups that you have, if you're going to be a new aspirant, you have to go through some kind of hazing to yeah. show your commitment. So in my reconstruction then, I mean, the Poimandris is also an extremely important. That's the first text of the Corpus Hermeticum. Uh, Now, for me, that's a kind of a charter myth, and it details how Hermes Trismegistus himself came to be deified. So so then you have Hermes as the disciple to the cosmic noose, or the hypercosmic noose. Exactly. And he's saying, noose, tell me. Yeah. Show me the, yeah. the things on high. Yeah, Palmandris presents himself as the mind of the sovereign power, and he's life and he's light. Mm. And so he, he appears to Hermes as Hermes is already sort of outside of his body. His mind is, uh, his, his own soul is soaring up high, you know, and then Palmandris comes down to him and he shows him all of these visions on. Uh, the creation of the world and the creation of the first human being who went from being a a sort of immaterial divine force, but then he descended, and as he descended, he received all of the exousiae, so the authorities or the energies of the planetary powers. Mm. So he receives those as he descends, and then he comes down, and then nature falls in love with him. So nature embraces him, and in that way, nature provides the physical body for this uh, descended primal human. Mm-hmm. And so then again, the, the treaty says that the disciple should then realize that the body is alien to one's point of origin, which is above. Mm-hmm. And uh, traditionally, this has been read as very dualistic. But uh, I argue in my book that the descent as such is willed by God. I mean, this is not a 
primordial fall from grace. Right. So it's, it's not an, a Sophia, like a Gnostic Sophia myth. No. It's a well, that's natural order of things, maybe more in an in a mainstream Platonist. I think there is a strong uh, parallel to the Sophia because also in several of the texts we have, you also find uh, Sophia descending with the sort of, it's providential, this fall of Sophia. So even though she falls, there's a purpose of her falling. For example, in the Gospel of the Egyptians, you find this. So there is a parallel. But um, so then when man, uh, when I, I say man, I should say the human descends because, of course, he's both male and female. And uh, then there are seven other uh, primal humans. And then this goes on for a period of time before God intervenes and he splits them into man and female. Uh, and it's only at, at this point that a problem arises with the body somehow uh, because the human is no longer complete. He's split up from his counterparts. And it's only at that point that the embodiment is presented as a problem. Uh, God says, uh, you know, uh, realize that the, the, the body is the source of death because the body is from the darkness and the, uh, and the nature. So again, I think in the early uh, stages, uh, I think the disciple would have read the Poimandris and see this and be taught to see the body as uh, you know as a problem that needs to be overcome and you find that again in the Parmandras at the end of his vision he's presented uh, of how the soul then reascends to its uh, point of origin and that's when the body dissolves the uh, soul ascends and it lays away at every planetary stage the uh, power or now the vice that it received in its descent and then it goes back up into the Ogduad, the eighth sphere and then it's even implied that he might go even higher up to the Ennead, which mm-hmm. is, you know, really high. Beyond the news. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then he's sort of back from uh, whence he, he came. Yeah. So the Pomandras kind of lays out the whole system, but I don't see it as um, an advanced treatise as such. It's a charter myth, so it's very foundational. Yeah. But the... The dualism that you see there is what I call a pedagogical dualism. Uh, it teaches the disciple that uh, they should recognize. It's all about self-knowledge, right? So yeah. you should recognize your inner human, uh, namely that it is immortal and immaterial and divine. And once you realize this, you start to consider the body and your stay here on earth as a misfortune. Uh, so then you go on and you have other treatises that also deal with uh, sort of a, a conversion. So you have uh, uh, one text that uh, specifically talks about uh, that people need to look away from their bodies and despise this uh, portable tomb, as it calls it. Yeah. So that's, uh, in my reconstruction, that's really the stage one. After you're converted and you start to become a hermitist, you're taught to hate the body. Uh, this is in Corpus Hermeticum 4, the mixing bowl. It says, uh, you can only love yourself if you hate the body. Mm-hmm. So that's the first stage. And stage number two, then, would be knowledge of... Uh, so first is knowledge of the self. The second is knowledge of the world, the cosmos, uh, which is to say that you, you learn that the world is illusory. It does not have truth or the good in it. The right. truth or the good can only be above. So that's stage number two, and I place a number of treatises comfortably there, like the second hermetic treatise that deals with space, 
uh, for example, and then also the sixth uh, Stobaic uh, excerpt, which deals with the decans, uh, that also um, seems to fit in comfortably here. Right. So learning uh, astrology, astronomy, learning physics, basically. What, we would, yes. what, a, what a philosopher of that era would have called physics yes, rather than metaphysics. Exactly. That's uh, stage two. Exactly, and that's what Hermes becomes known for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Tertullian calls him the magister omnium physicorum. Uh, so, the, yeah. uh, uh, so he's known to be a physical uh, philosopher. That's interesting. Um, and this... M- let, I don't want to derail you, but I'd love to come back to yeah. the question of technical hermetica right. and how they might fit into all this. Because mm-hmm. the technical hermetica, or yeah. at least the hermetic astrological texts, mm. go back much further than we think, than the, mm. the text we're talking about. Yeah. Yes, uh, I mean, this is also hotly debated. The dating of these texts is very difficult yeah. uh, because, of course, the manuscript we have is far later. Yeah. Uh, or but we don't have a manuscript at all. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and often you find Hermes just uh, referred uh, referred to by other uh, by later astrologers. But we do have some texts. I mean, uh, Franz Cumont, the famous uh, Hellenist, wrote about uh, this uh, book, which is normally called the Liber Hermetis, hmm. the Herm- uh, the Hermetic book. And uh, this is a text only preserved in Latin. And he proposed, so this is in his book called uh, L'Egypte des Astrologues, mm-hmm. the Egypt of the Astrologers, where he brilliantly reconstructs a, uh, reconstructs a Ptolemaic social history from the uh, astrological book. And you can see the sort of the preoccupations of the author and their client. And the author in his version of events is that these, are, these would have been Egyptian priests. Right and who were known to be expert astrologers. Um, uh, The problem with this is that later uh, people such as David Pingree, later scholars, have problematized uh, that this is the case. But parts of it, uh, significantly the parts dealing with the Deccans, may be from the Ptolemaic era, uh, and I think there's still a good case to be made uh, for that. Whereas other parts seem to have been accretions, like these were not static books, but they received additions and accretions during time. So these are incredibly hard to date, yep. but I think it's uh, uh, I think it still stands to reason that there would have been astrological hermetica in the second century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also related to this corpus of uh, Nikepso and Petosiris, yeah. the two famous, you know, the, the Egyptian king and his priest. Yeah. Uh, so listeners who are unfamiliar with these names will want to go back to our episode on Hellenistic astrology, and uh, we talk about all these texts and the okay. prominence of them and stuff like that. Yeah. So we're on the Hermetic way, mm. her, the Hermaic way. There's, mm. we, they, people talk about it in both terms, don't they, in antiquity? Yeah. We've realized that the body is um, to be escaped from. Yeah. We've, we've learned knowledge of the cosmos mm. and the, the nature of the world. Mm. Is this knowledge presented as sort of salvific? Like... By knowing this, you get the keys to yes, escaping. It is. Uh, like, for example, in uh, uh, the sixth Stobaic uh, excerpt that deals with the Decans, it says specifically that uh, for those who know these things, uh, they will be able to also know God. So there's this sense that the, uh, uh, the one who knows the world can also know the creator, so the created and the creator which is also a topos you will find in certain yeah. Christian texts, yeah. uh, of course. Um, 
But it says, so, and this is also uh, my point, that several of these texts uh, detailing a teaching situation between Hermes and Tot, sometimes other disciples like Asclepius, uh, they uh, talk about this vision of God that uh, might be attained to, but they don't detail it happening at that moment. So it's presented as a future possibility. So again, this is an indication that these texts present themselves as being introductory towards a future possibility of seeing God. Mm. Uh, and so, for example, is this uh, Stobaic Hermeticum number six. It says that those who come to know these things perfectly, they will be able to see God. And then Corpus Hermeticum 10, which is also, it's called the key, and in my view, it is also kind of a key to the introductory stages of hermetism. It's kind of an epi- it presents itself as the epitome of the genikoi logoi, uh, which are most often uh, translated as the general discourses. And I believe these sort of genikoi logoi have something to do with the course leading to rebirth. Um, that makes sense because genikoi could could it could refer to English listeners are going to think of the word genus. Yes. So like a kind of overarching topic yes. under which lots of little specific stuff can be discussed. You could yeah. have like an astrology one, a mm. physics one, an elemental one yeah. maybe, yeah. Okay. I, I think that might be the case that the Genikos deals with the, um, uh, the rebirth and the reason for saying that is of course Genikos means that it pertains to Genos, right? Uh, and in Corpus Hermeticum 13, this is exactly what Tot, uh, Tot has to make a sort of a self-presentation to say that he's now ready for the rebirth. And then he says that, I am a foreign son born of the paternal genos, the paternal race or the paternal family. So uh, it does have to, it does have to do with realizing your own genos Namely, that your genos is uh, foreign to the world, but it, uh, you're part of the genos from up high. Now, that uh, does sound Gnostic. Yes, of course, you do have uh, similar stuff with uh, yeah, the, Seth, the, the, Seth, yeah, the seed of Seth and so forth, uh, so for sure. So we've got our knowledge, yeah. and in your, in your reconstruction, the next step then is... Rebirth. Rebirth. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah, so rebirth is basically um, when the disciple who know for a certain time, it's unspecified how long time, but I mean, there's a lot of teaching going on, so we must imagine, uh, you know, maybe years uh, that he's pursuing some kind of ascetic practices, some kind of withdrawal from the world. This seems at least to be reflected in the text where they talk about the passions as being sort of demonized and they talk about making yourself a stranger to the world. And then he presents himself to his spiritual father as a candidate for rebirth and he has to state certain passwords like the one I just mentioned. And then the father will kind of test him to see if that's the case. Uh, and then the father explains to him that, well, you are looking at me now, but you cannot really see me uh, because what I am uh, is invisible to corporeal eyes. So in order to see me, uh, you have to develop these eyes of the mind. And, uh, and this befuddles Tot. So he goes through some sort of uh, man- manaya, 
uh, mania, I guess you would say. Yeah. Uh, so the famous Platonic uh, states where you can sort of uh, receive the vision. So there's there's this kind of back and forth between the father and the disciple, which where the uh, father tries to put Tot out of his countenance uh, to sort of befuddle him and make yeah. make him because Tot comes into this being all arrogant and uh, self-assured. Well, I got it. I I have mastered all the introductory courses now. I I understand everything, and what Hermes says uh, totally befuddles him. So he says. I'm out of my mind now, Father. I thought I had become wise, but now what you're telling me makes no sense. But it seems that this is the state that Hermes wants him to be. Like He, he wants him to uh, leave all of his preconceptions behind. Mm. And then Hermes directs his attention to these 12 avengers of matter, uh, 12 material avengers that resides in the body. And these are, of course, astral demons, associated with the passions that reside in Tat. And then he instructs Tat to be silent. And this silence, we learn in the introduction, is called the womb of the rebirth. So uh, once you enter the silence, we can imagine this as a sort of a meditative silence. Yeah, maybe Uh, it's like a Vipassana yeah, you know, yeah. vipassana course where you know people do freak out. Yeah. on those vipassana. Yeah, entries. exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, it's an intense thing to uh, to do. So, uh, so we can imagine that that Tat is silent, and that he's keeping the silence uh, for a while, and uh, then Hermes starts speaking again, and he says, uh, uh, "Rejoice, because now knowledge has." descended uh, to us. Now, knowledge being the first of the ten divine powers. Uh, Gnosis. Yeah, exactly. And then he keeps invoking more of these powers. Uh, so, enkrateya, you know, uh, uh, and then the knowledge of joy is one of them. Uh, so, and for each of power that he invokes, he asks the disciple to see it as it descends to him, and it descends into him, and as the luminous, this is luminous powers, as they enter into him, the dark avengers, they sort of flee away, and they wheeze as they flee away, so they're like the powers of darkness being vanquished by the light here. So one by one, the ten luminous powers enter into Tat and chase away than the 12 Avengers of Darkness. And the, the last two of the powers are called Life and Light, which we know from the Parmandras is uh, what the primal human consisted of, mm. uh, Life and Light. And then once they're all together in uh, Tat, he says that these, these 10 are now actually one. So here you have uh, kind of Neo-Pythagorean number symbolism where the decad is the same as the monad. Uh, so in the monads, equal, one equals ten yep. in the system. The tetractus, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, you also have a move toward that monistic, synthetic way of thinking that you were talking about, yes. moving from a kind of dualist, mm-hmm. body-soul dualism, let's say, for yeah. probably over, oversimplifying, but anyway, to a, um, a, higher, like a, a higher synthesis on a new level where there's a oneness. Yeah, because once, once then the ten powers are present in Tat, Tat exclaims that he sees himself in everything. So he's, he's in heaven, he's on earth, 
he's in animals and he's in plants he, and he says he's before the womb in the womb and after the womb so he's, uh, he, there's a sort of a cosmic ubiquity now that he sees himself as being uh, everywhere at once and every, every when at once as every well. when at once and uh, the reason for this is now that he has become identical uh, the functional equivalent of the mind of the world the demiurge because the goal of this whole thing in his test is he has become a god and son of god which again in the Poimandra is, is exactly the title of the demiurge uh, there yeah. and the primal human of course being the brother of the, of the demiurge so yes, I, I see this as the point where the initial pedagogical dualism is resolved into an overarching monism and Tat realizes that everything now is one, that the universal mind suffuses everything. So you have sort of a re-aggregation. Uh, uh, he went from being alienated with the world. In the beginning, he's alienated from the world. Mm. And at the end of the treatise, he's totally integrated into the world. But in a new way. In a new way, exactly. Mm. Uh, in, a, in a sort of total way. He's not partially a part of cosmos. He's, he's everywhere at once. Wow. Uh, and then you have the hymn of rebirth, where these powers that Tat has received, uh, they now sing hymns to the material cosmos to their counterparts uh, above, so their transcendent counterparts. So there's a sort of the hymn uh, resonates throughout the cosmos and where the uh, hymnists are in they are attuned to the powers that sing in the Ogduad, uh, which is the demiurgic realm just above the material cosmos. So this is a sort of beautiful evocation of a, of a sort of a Pythagorean harmony of the spheres where you vibrate in tune to the, uh, uh, the cosmic harmony that suffuses uh, the world. Uh, so yes, again, I think that's, that's the point of integration where, uh, where you find the monism being introduced. And then once that's happened, you're immortal. Yes, now you're immortal. And presumably you then can become a teacher in this way? We don't know. No, it's, uh, I don't think so, because it's not complete. Uh, so at the end, uh, you're right, he is now a mortal, Tot, and he asks uh, Hermes, when is this new body? I mean, he calls these ten powers a new body. When does it dissolve? And Hermes says, no, you should never say that. It will never dissolve. It's, it's immortal. So what's happened? You can relate this also to Corpus Hermeticum number 10, the key, where it talks about um, uh, that you become essence, like the soul has tra been transformed to be so the soul has now tr transformed to become a divine uh, a divine mind instead of a human mind uh, but the course is not uh, complete yet because taught in the treatise of the rebirth uh, says that he not he wants to hear the hymn that Hermes has earlier said that he would hear when he arrived at the Ogduad the eighth and Hermes says well, that, uh, that is a noble aspiration you have, my son. Um, and you should, in fact, hasten to release yourself from this tent, uh, meaning the tent of the body. Uh, and then he does not proceed to, to give him the hymn of the Agduad, but he proceeds to give him this hymn of the rebirth. So uh, I argue, and this is some people have believed, that there is some kind of an, an ascent and the rebirth. 
I don't see it as an ascent. I see it as a descent of, uh, as a descent of the divine powers into Tat. Right. Uh, it, at the moment, Tat seems to be away from his body, but uh, the <laughs> so the soul of Tat is presented as sort of hovering in the atmosphere over his body. Um, now I've speculated a little bit on the location of the rebirth, which m- might be sort of, sort of conceptually be in uh, the uh, the atmosphere close to the lunar station, because there are other texts that detail that there are salvific demons dwelling in the realm just below the the moon. But this is kind of speculative. So, uh, but at any rate, there is no true ascent in the treatise to the uh, Ogduad. Yeah. And it seems that Tot's wish to hear the hymn is deferred. And this is what made the discovery of the Nagamari uh, uh, library so important for hermetic studies because uh, of the tree hermetica you find there, you found there, there's one excerpt from a text we already know, the Asclepius. The second one is the prayer of thanksgiving, which is also the final sort of ending of the Asclepius. And it's also known individually from the mag- in Greek magical papyri. And then, so the only totally new text was this discourse on the 8th and the 9th, or discourse on the Agduad and the Enad. Yeah. Also, uh, in, inside the text, it seems to be named, the Agduad reveals the Enad. Yeah. Now, and in this text, this, uh, the, what Tot wants to accomplish and at the end of the, the rebirth is what comes to pass, that he ascends past the Hebdomad, the seven spheres, yeah. and enters into the Agduad. And uh, so this is kind of a guided visionary ascent. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is a, a theme we're very familiar with from many genres of, of yes. antiquity. So yeah. apocalyptic, the Platonic myths, starting with yeah. the Platonic myths, yes. apocalyptic, mm. Plutarch, Plotinus, of course, mm. in some ways, mm. Philo, in some mm. ways. Um, you could even see the Dream of Scipio, where you have exactly this, uh, the Dream of Scipio, and then mm. um, Macrobius's commentary in the Dream of Scipio mm-hmm. is another layer mm. of uh, ascent, mm. sort of mm-hmm. narrative. And uh, and uh, I also in my book I uh, compare uh, compare it specifically with the so-called Mithras liturgy, yeah. which is of course not a liturgy nor uh, nor Mithraic. really Mithraic. Despite some claims to the contrary, recently, uh, so, so yeah, it's um, and again, this, this is exactly this that shows that this. I don't believe this. These are just literary texts, but that there were some people who claimed to have accomplished uh, a cosmic this. ascent. Yes, a cosmic, cosmic ascent. and hypercosmic. Ascent. Yeah, and so I think again, the Mithras liturgy gives you the blue the blueprint of how to achieve it. Yeah. So uh, that's the recipe. It's not a, a sort of a narrative of an ascent, but it's a Agreed. recipe. Yeah. Um, I would say the Chaldean oracles seem to point in that direction as well. Yeah, those are vaguer in my view. I mean, it's... Uh, I think maybe more because they very, don't survive. Yeah, very elusive. Uh, to uh, I, I agree that there must be an ascent there, but it's... Yeah, to me it's very elusive what's yeah. going on at I mean, the Oracles. But then even when you have the Mitras liturgy where it says mm-hmm. breathe in the rays of the sun yes. and rise up on the rays, it's still mm-hmm. a bit difficult to understand what that means. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, and those specific passages have been associated with the Chaldean oracles. Mm. Uh, I mean, in the uh, last edition of the Mithras liturgy um, by Hans-Dieter Betz, he even proposes that this reflects an early uh, hermetic community 
that it would be because the uh, Mithras liturgy uh, seems to have been a secondary redaction of what uh, was known as an apathanatismus ritual, uh, immortalization ritual. Uh, but this immortalization ritual has then been turned into a divination ritual uh, where you're supposed to rise up. So Hans-Dieter Betz actually suggests that this is early hermetic, and uh, I'm sympathetic to that view. Uh, there are clear parallels with the hermetica, uh, but it's, it's not provable. Plausible, but not provable. Yes, exactly. So <clears throat> we've attained to the highest state mm. of the hermetic mm. uh, path. Mm. An ascent. So first a descent, which mm. is very important that mm-hmm. you've emphasized. Yeah. A descent of, of the hypercosmic powers into mm. the cosmos, mm. which is quite something special, I think. Mm. Looking for parallels, I think of Jesus' descent, yes. right, mm. as a redeemer figure into the cosmos mm-hmm. to save the material world. Mm-hmm. And you have a descent of a redeemer in some of the Gnostic mm. systems as well. But um, the ascent of the let's call him the practitioner or the the ascend the the, the human subject mm. seems to be maybe more predominant in a lot of in a lot of this literature mm. as more emphasized but mm. here we have a descent mm. salvation of some kind mm. immortalization i guess mm. you've got this new immortal body mm. then if you add the evidence of the ogduad reveals the ennead you mm. have an reascent mm. now do you think this this reascent is something Let's assume that people did this, if some kind of yeah. practice. Mm. Presumably, after you've done it, you're you're still living in Egypt. Yeah, going wow, yeah. what what just happened? Yeah. something like that. And are then are you a perfected hermetic teacher? Maybe. Yes, you're basically a god among humans. <laughs> but um, no, it's very interesting. This several treatises, for example, the Asclepius talks about this. Uh, Asclepius being this very long Latin text that we only have it in Latin and only some snippets of the original Greek. Uh, and uh, uh, there it debates this that after you sort of ascend and you see w- whatever is up in heaven and above heaven it is necessary to go back down because the human has an important role in creation. Namely, it's kind of the, we're kind of the uh, emissaries of God. We're here, to, we're here to make, help make the world into an image of God in the Asclepius. Right. So therefore it says that you cannot stay, <laughs> even though you would maybe want to, you cannot stay up in the uh, immaterial uh, noetic realms forever. You need to go back into your body because you have work to do here. Now, of course, the work of the hermitists is not, uh, you know, to uh, to do any sort of mundane craftsmanship or so forth because they're highly elitist. So their work uh, in the Asclepius is to contemplate uh, heaven. Um, and of course, there also you have this uh, highly interesting passage about creating statues, divine statues. And that's part of the reason that I, in my book, uh, associate these people, the hermitists, with Egyptian priests. Well, let's move on to that, yeah. that question. I wanted to ask you, just to contextualize a bit, that for a long time, because the Hermetica are written in Greek, for the most part, mm. although the Ogduad and the Ennead is in Coptic, um, but translated from Greek. Yeah. yeah. There was long a kind of, I guess, a semi-consensus anyway, that this was basically a Greek mm-hmm. 
movement thought world. Um, it reminds us of a lot of things we find in Middle Platonism. It reminds us a lot of um, other kind of Hellenic movements from the time. And we also know that the Greeks tended to treat foreign peoples around them uh, in a very kind of let's say, let's say they they um, they weren't very good anthropologists. <laughs> they they didn't have a kind of nuanced ear for foreign. Yeah. Um, religious beliefs and stuff like that. Mm. They tend to Hellenify them mm. if they dealt with them at all. Mm. So there's these this Gre- Greco-Egyptian community, Greeks living in Egypt, but they're very separate from the Egyptians. Mm. Right? Yeah. Um, this is maybe well less so during. I mean, you you have to remember that by the time. Uh, so the Hermetic texts, most of them are tentatively dated, maybe to the second century. I think some of CE. The, yeah. CE. Uh, I think some of them might be earlier. I make the case that some of the teachings, if, if not some of the treaties, that some of the teachings would have been around in the first century BCE, right. so before. At least by the second century uh, CE, that would maybe have been the sort of hermetic heyday, yeah. um, which is also kind of the Gnostic heyday. That's when the, a lot of the big teachers... So uh, there's an explosion in what, of course, Dylan calls the platonic underworld uh, there. So having presented the, the counter-argument or the counter kind of assumption that yeah. it's just Greek, yeah. Mahe and I think you yeah. and others have argued that that's a bit absurd. There, there is some Egyptian yeah. in this. So what is Egyptian? Uh, yeah, that's a, a very good question. I mean, of course, the discourse they belong to is a kind of a, the Greek platonic uh, discourse. They're written in Greek. They use Greek philosophical vocabulary. Uh, so at first, at first gaze, the only Egyptian thing about it is the interlocutors. Right. And of course, that, that's all pseudonymous. So again, this is the reason that people said, well, these are just Greeks, and they tacked on the names of these Oriental sages to make them look exotic and uh, exciting. Uh, so the reason for saying that they're Egyptian is really uh, the circumstantial evidence that there's a widespread uh, all of our sources discussing Hermes Trismegistus uh, are in agreement that this is this is Egyptian and sort of my aha moment uh, came reading Iamblichus uh, the uh, third century third early fourth century uh, Neoplatonist which I'm sure you we have will, or will be talking about we will be talking about it yeah. in due course and he says in the De Mysteries or the response to Abamon, uh, as it's properly called, uh, he says that. Uh, well, he, of course, he takes on the role of a, of an Egyptian uh, priest, uh, priest, a prophet, which is the sort of the high priest. Uh, the prophet would be the person that goes into the inner chamber where the divine statue was and uh, sort of uh, worships and venerates the statue every day, three times a day. Uh, and in this guise, he presents uh, the hermetic teachings, and he's responding to these critical questions of Porphyry, who has all of these uh, critical questions to the Egyptian tradition of theurgy, which is likely partly a response to the to Iamblichus, but maybe also to the Hermetica. And it seems that because so Iamblichus answers, how is it that the hermetic treatises? if they're supposed to be Egyptian, they're written in the tongue of Greek philosophers, the idiom of Greek philosophers. And Iamblichus says, well, that's because they were written uh, by um, Egyptian priests. But the Egyptian priests always write down their 
treatises and put them in the name of Hermes Trismegistus, who is their common patron god. He's their tutelary god, right? So therefore, it's a sign of reverence to him that they put their own treatises in his mm. name. And, uh, of course, uh, Jambrichus also says that these are, in fact, translations from the Egyptian. So they are translated from the Egyptian by Egypt, uh, Egyptian priests well-versed in philosophy. Now, of course, the translation part, I don't believe. There's no sort of demotic text that is fully... There are texts that comes close to it. I mean, you have a disciple between a figure that might be Toth and a son uh, in the so-called Book of Toth. Uh, and a demotic uh, uh, book. Uh, but, I mean, the teaching there is totally different because it's full of priestly lore for uh, someone uh, becoming a priestly scribe. But you do have the dialogue structure there, and you have certain similarities. But I don't really believe that um, we'll, we will ever find a hermetic tractate in demotic uh, simply because these are different... Audiences. I mean, in the Roman period, demotic was something uh, was the priestly sphere that uh, were the only ones who used demotic anymore. Right. And so I see the her- Hermetica being their their way of preaching to the Gentiles, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, you know, uh, it's their way of reaching out to the Greco-Roman world. And, uh, but just to be clear, you think there is a priestly origin of some kind yes, for this? Yes, I think a, I think that a, at least a core group of the text. Not I'm not saying necessarily all the Hermetic texts, but at least a core group of the texts uh, uh, would have been uh, written by Egypt priests. Now that's really interesting. It's yeah. a very it's a very bold claim. I, it is. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> um, now you, I, sh- I should just point out here that you are someone who is actually a, an Egyptologist. Or to somebody, you don't work on like, the early... You know, I'm not a classically trained Egyptologist. Yeah, but you, so you read Coptic. You work on, yeah. on the Greco-Roman, yeah. Egypt in the Greco-Roman period, yeah. not uh, just in Greek and Latin, yeah. but also... Uh, in I mean, this is... Uh, uh, my deficiency, of course, is that I'm not a demotist. Now, I dabble... Uh, uh, you know, I've dabbled in uh, demotic, but it's uh, an extremely hard language, so I hope the demotists will uh, pardon me. Go uh, easy on uh, you. Go easy on me. So, let's say that these Egyptian priests, what kind of thought world are they living in? I mean, in, in some ways it seems like they, who are, they say the hermetic authors, mm. or author even, maybe. Mm. Whatever they're doing in their sort of cultic day-to-day life, mm. they're well-read in, in a roughly middle Platonist, Hellenic yes. form of philosophy, yeah. among other things. Yeah. And not just one dude, but presumably a tradition of yeah. Um, many generations of this yeah. stuff seeping into Egyptian yeah. society from the Greeks, yeah. which is what we would expect. Right? Yes, the, exactly. these, peop- these two populations aren't living in yeah. hermetically sealed yeah. uh, ca- capsules. Yeah. Ha ha. What's going in the other direction? So, what do we find, see in the Hermetica, if anything, that is coming from like Egyptian tradition, religious tradition, or is there really not anything? Hmm. Well, that's, a, uh, again, a, g- a good question. I mean, there's still so much we don't know about Egyptian religious tradition. Uh, I mean, the point of comparison might be the, uh, the cult of Isis, which also, I mean, there we know that there were Egyptian priests working together with uh, Greek and Roman converts uh, yeah. that, that were interested. So I think... I mean, uh, I, I do think that this ritual aspect of it, uh, where the 
the, the disciple is born again, is made immortal, and he's uh, led up to heavenly ascent. Uh, it seems that uh, the uh, Egyptian priests were someone who had a reputation for being able to procure face-to-face meetings with the divine. Now, we have several sources there. I mean, famously, it's the incident in the Isis temple in Rome where Plotinus uh, came to meet an Egyptian priest who invoked his uh, guardian demon, who turned out to be a god, yeah. right? Uh, but you have uh, other. You have the Thessaly of Trollus uh, account. Thessalos. <coughs> yeah. Thessalos, yeah, sorry. Which we've spoken about in an earlier oh, episode. Oh, great, yeah. Uh, so he, of course, goes to Thebes and l- looking for a priest to give him a face-to-face encounter with uh, Asclepius. Uh, of course, the Greek magical papyri, uh, at least the core of them, arguably belonged to uh, uh, to Theban priests at some point. So this, I mean, you have this genre of um, Egyptian spells that go back a long time, uh, calling the, the God's Arrival. Mm. Uh, so, so this is uh, sort of a, a permutation of an Egyp- Egyptian genre uh, of, uh, of rituals. Other than that, I mean, again, you have the cast of characters and you have this... Uh, Maybe we could mention the statues in the Asclepius yes, a bit more. the statues are important. Uh, so what's all this animating statues in Egypt business about? Yeah, well, so in, in the Asclepius uh, really emphasizes the importance of these uh, statues. Uh, and now um, uh, uh, so the Asclepius admits that the statues themselves are man-made, which, of course, was... A point of contention. People critical to statues said, "Well, these. How can you worship something man-made?" Mm. But in the Asclepius, we are told that uh, they are uh, made from certain uh, stones and woods and plants that are uh, sympathetically attuned to certain divine powers. So, so then you make this stone uh, or, or stone or wooden sta- uh, statue. And uh, then you summon the soul of angels or demons to come and dwell into uh, in it. And once it dwells in the statue, then you need to keep it present. And you do that through constant prayers and sacrifices. Right, so you sort of feed it. Yes. And now this, of course, does not correspond to the Greek view of uh, statues. No. This is not what the Greeks did, but this is exactly what the Egyptian did. So the Egyptian have this, uh, Egyptians have this uh, rite called the opening of the mouth. Uh, so this is a rite that was also used on mummies. It's a way to render inert, lifeless objects uh, full of life. Uh, I mean, so in the case of the statues, it's a way to make the ba, the soul of the god, or the manifestation of the god, alight upon the statue, right? And then that's precisely what they do is uh, what the Asclepius says, that they have to constantly uh, sing hymns and praises to the statue and uh, give it sacrifices. So they do this. They have the morning ritual, the midday ritual, and the evening ritual where they open the sanctuary of the god and then close, and close it. So, so, so this theology of the statues in the Asclepius uh, is... Egyptian, and it uh, shows that whoever wrote this has sort of some intimate knowledge of the Egyptian temple cult. 
uh, and also the dialogue in that treatise is specifically said to take place within the inner confines of a temple. Mm. Hermes meets with his pupils Tat, Asclepius, and Ammon within the confines of a temple. So what happens then if you stop worshipping the statues? Well, that's the famous uh, apocalypse of the Asclepius. Uh, where Hermes tells his disciples that you should be aware that there will be a time when foreigners will invade Egypt. In that time, they will prevent the Egyptians from rendering proper cult to the, their gods. And the result will be that the gods leave their statues, and thus they leave Egypt, and Egypt will be rendered desolate of gods. Uh, all the gods will leave Egypt. So what's so bad about this? Well, Egypt is uh, the temple of the world and the image of heaven. So if the temple of the world is bereft of the divine presence, well, that means that the whole world is pretty much screwed. Yeah. So, uh, so this is why uh, immediately after uh, the Egyptians are prevented from rendering cult, uh, first societal norms break, break down. Uh, there's sort of there's killings and the uh, Nile runs high with blood, uh, and um, um, dead bodies are everywhere. But then you also have a sort of cosmic collapse where the air becomes f foul and unbreathable. You can't see the stars anymore. You can't navigate. Uh, so uh, the s social and cosmic order breaks down until finally the demiurge looks at this and he goes like, "Well, this is no good." And he steps in. And again, this is uh, similar to the Egyptian ideology of the temple cult, where you have the idea that ma'at, the uh, sort of ostrich feather representing the cosmic order, which is also in that famous scene uh, in the Book of the Dead, when you, the, dead, uh, the heart of the dead person is weighed against the feather of truth, you know. Uh, so ma'at is dependent on uh, the temples uh, constantly upholding uh, the, the presence and goodwill of the gods. So do you think that this prophecy is a reference to... What is this referring to, if it's referring to anything? Um, because the, the Egyptians have been under foreign rule now forever, Yeah. right? Foreign yeah. ruler after foreign ruler, yeah. then you had the Ptolemaic yeah. uh, dynasty, then you had the Romans. Yeah. This is written under the Romans, presumably. Yeah. What's it referring to? Is it referring maybe to uh, something new that's happening vis-a-vis mm. -vis the temple cult? Yeah, that's or is it, it just a kind of more like things were so much better in the old days of the Middle Kingdom? Yeah. I mean, you had uh, from the beginning discontent and uh, you had... For the most part, it seems that it, during the Ptolemaic period, the priests saw it in their interest to collaborate with the new uh, Greek rulers. Of course, in, if you see Ptolemaic-era temples, and some of the greatest temples uh, still standing are Ptolemaic, uh, uh, there you see the Ptolemaic rulers presented as pharaohs, yeah. uh, right? So a lot of priests saw it in, in their interest to uh, collaborate with these new overlords. Uh, but you do have discontent from the beginning, uh, especially in Upper Egypt, which is far away from Alexandria and sort of the court. You have priest-led rebellions uh, several times uh, in the Ptolemaic period. And then you also do have a sort of uh, apocalyptic uh, literature in Egyptian. For example, the Potter's Oracle seems to portray Alexandria as sort of this decadent... Uh, place of the invaders, whereas Memphis is there portrayed as the uh, 
the original place of the gods. So you do have this literature, both in Demotic and some of them translated uh, into Greek uh, also, where the uh, rule of the Ptolemies and then later the Romans are criticized. Um, but of course, the Romans did not prevent the Egyptians from uh, practicing their cult, uh, but they exert a more uh, centralized control uh, than the Ptolemies did. You now remember, the Ptolemies were Egyptian kings. They ruled over Egypt and sometimes Cyprus and you know Palestine yeah. and so forth, but they were kind of Greeks ruling in Egypt. Whereas when, you, when the Romans come in uh, after Cleopatra, it becomes an imperial province. It becomes the uh, personal province of Augustus, right? So now you have the situation where you still have an emperor that's portrayed as a pharaoh, uh, but he's no longer in Egypt he's at all. There, yeah. uh, he's somewhere else. He's in Rome or you know, around on campaigning and so forth. And Egypt is now just one of several provinces. Yeah. And then you have the Roman administration setting down, for example, a high priest of Alexandria and all of Egypt. Uh, who is this? Is this a, an Egyptian priest? No, it's a Roman bureaucrat who is now high priest and tasked with keeping oversight over all of this. Yeah. And this comes together with impounding large tracts of temple land and uh, sort of then handing out stipends uh, to the priests. So, I mean, the, the Romans didn't prevent the Egyptians from practicing their cult, but they did, they did put on strictures, so to speak. I, I have a suggestion in my book on the apocalypse that there is a, actually we have a decree from the year 199 CE where you have the prefect of Egypt putting down a ban on divination. Wow. And he says that the, this ban seems to be directed especially against uh, divinatory processions that were hugely popular in Egypt during festivals. The god would come out. This was the only time that the god would come out of the inner sanctum mm. and be carried on his boat, uh, be carried before you know, throngs of uh, worshippers. Mm. And then worshippers could come up to the boat and ask questions uh, and depending on the movement of the boat they would get answers right. so this this is now prevented together with all kind of wisdom pretending to be divine wow. in this decree so my suggestion has been that this uh, uh, apocalypse might have been might have been a response to this in which case it would have been written in the early years of the third century now this is also the third century is a period when we see Egyptian sources dwindling incredibly. We see far less demotic and hieroglyphic uh, sources. And so, is that partly due to the, this sort of slow Roman wearing down of Egyptian yeah, the, institutions? I mean, this is highly debated, and uh, of course, because... The question is, when you come to the Christian period, you have a lot of Christian sources detailing you know, an Egyptian cult still going strong, that then the heroic monks vanquish the evil pagans and then introduce Christianity. Uh, now, this picture has increasingly now been demolished, and uh, the consensus is now that by the time you come to the 4th century, when Christianity has an explosive growth in Egypt, where you go from the beginning of the 4th century, you have 
a very small minority of Christians. And then towards the end of the fourth century, you have, uh, you have Christianity, Christianity has taken over everything. And then there's the question, like, were there pagan survivals and so forth? And this is, you know, a, bi a, a big debate. But, but increasingly, it seems that by, at the entrance already of the fourth century, you find a much weakened Egyptian temple cult. And uh, I think this is also why the, uh, in this period, this prophecy of Asclepius resonated uh, yeah. with the Egyptians because they could see this going on around them, that the gods were leaving Egypt. So, of course, you find this, is the, this apocalypse is precisely the passage of the Asclepius you find in the Nagamari treatises. So the people reading it would probably uh, see, well, this is happening right now. Mm. But I think the response, I'm, uh, in the third century, you all already find signs that this um, immense machinery of the larger Egyptian temples, they don't have the same muscle to keep these huge cults uh, in place. Mm. Uh, so you find sort of a tiredness creeping in. That makes sense. So I think that's the, uh, that's the likely context of it. Well, Christian, on that, on that rather, rather sad note <laughs> of decadence and yeah. uh, running down and, yeah. and things coming to an end, maybe we should finish up our interview. Yeah, the positive thing is that the Demiurge comes in and he renews the cosmos and right. makes it as it was in the very first time. Yeah. So uh, maybe there's hope. The bad news is that he purges the cosmos first. Uh, so This is the problem. <laughs> you can't have new life without death. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Christian Bull, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us yeah. about your very exciting and interesting and um, I think very plausible ideas about yeah. this material. And uh, stay esoteric. Thank you.